Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, the series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You would never guess on the title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel, Daniel Downey. I am your host. I'm a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh. And I do a thing in the city, it's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history, and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about. So I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So as you listen to this episode, as you listen to these podcasts, you'll hopefully learn a bit and laugh a bit as well. Uh, Today's episode is all about John Knox and the Scottish Reformation. Now, John Knox, he was Scotland's most miserable man before Sir Andy Murray. And basically, he was this extreme Protestant middle-aged man who utterly despised the charismatic female ruler of Scotland at the time, exactly like your Uncle John on Facebook, basically. You know, staunch John, just like him. And the Scottish Reformation, that was the moment when Scotland decided to stop being a Catholic country and became a Protestant country. But we didn't want to be happy Protestants, like down in England. When we went through our Reformation, we chose a form of Protestantism called Calvinism. Now, this was the the most miserable, the most extreme form of Protestantism. Basically, if the Taliban were Protestants, they'd be Calvinists. All right, that's the best way I can describe it to you. And we we were always destined to go that way in Scotland. Do you know what I mean? Like, we were destined to be miserable Protestants. If you give Scottish people a choice of grey misery over over-the-top showiness, they're only ever going to choose one way, folks. I can assure you that. But the Scottish Reformation, it meant that when Mary returned to Scotland from France in 1561, she did so as a Catholic monarch in charge of a newly Protestant country. And this put Scotland's Protestants in a predicament because it meant that they now had to sing fuck the Pope and fuck the Queen. It was a a very, very difficult time to be a Rangers fan, folks, you know. Now listen, if this is the first time that you have listened to the podcast, right, that is pretty much exactly what you should expect from this podcast, right? I'm not going to lie to you, this is mainly Scottish history mixed with Tory bashing and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time that you've listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to the start? They all go in chronological order. They all offer a bit of background at the one that follows it. They're all named, so you can like jump in at William Wallace or Robert the Bruce, whatever, but basically go through the back catalogue. That's what I'm saying to you. Right, anyway, folks, so here you go. Here is, uh, without further ado, here is today's episode. It's all about Mary's return from France, the Scottish Reformation and John Knox. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! When Mary arrived in Paris in October 1548, the sophistication of the French court would have seemed alien to her and her Scots companions. If France was the Hilton, then Scotland was very much the double tree. You know, it would have been like going from homes under the hammer to grand designs. And Mary's impact on the French court was immediate. They were captivated by the young Scottish queen. The French queen, Catherine de' Medici, commented, This small queen of Scots has only to smile in order to turn all French heads. Mary was beautiful, a striking young lassie, an outgoing child, and the French Dauphin Francois, well, he was very much the opposite. He was small, sickly, awkward and shy. Mary was miles out of his league. It's... The only reason that she was marrying him was because of his royal credentials. It's exactly like Kate and Wills or Meghan and Harry or Princess Diana or basically any lassie that decides to marry into that family of fucking inbreds. 
Mary doted on and mothered the future French king and almost immediately a genuine affection grew between the two of them. Mary, she was educated alongside Francois and the French princesses Elizabeth and Claude, who would become close friends of Mary's. Their royal nursery would move frequently from Fontainebleau to Blois to Saint-Germain to Chambord, touring with Le Singing Quetel. And as the nursery moved, a huge staff of servants and staff moved with them. Every detail of Mary's life was taken care of. She lived in unimaginable luxury compared to her childhood in Scotland. Like, she encountered her first golden piano. And uh, and she was allowed to have the temperature at 22 degrees all year round. In Scotland, she wouldn't have dreamed of putting the heating on before November, you know? At Mary's education, it was carefully planned. She had lessons in Spanish, Italian, classics. She studied drawing, dancing, playing the lute and how to ride expertly. And in the recent adaptation of Mary's Life that I watched, Mary Queen of Cox, the actress who played Mary, she was certainly an expert rider, I can assure you that. And it didn't take long before Mary was able to converse fluently in French, which was her preferred language for the rest of her life. It was Mary who changed the Scottish spelling of Stuart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, to S-T-U-A-R-T, the French spelling. And she would forever sign her correspondence Marie Stuart in the French manner. The marriage between Mary and Francois was of particular importance to the French king Henri II who had designs on using Mary's status as Queen of Scotland and her strong claim on the English throne to incorporate Scotland and England into a, a larger French state. A parliamentary delegation was sent to France in March 1558 to discuss the terms of Mary's marriage to Francois and a 15-year-old Mary, she agreed to uphold the ancient freedoms, liberties and privileges of Scotland and unlike Gordon Brown, she actually did intend on upholding them and keeping her word. And it was agreed that the Dauphin should, after the marriage, bear the title King of Scots and that the two kingdoms be united under one crown. Now just think, if that had actually happened and Scotland was French, like we'd all be speaking French right now and American tourists still wouldn't be able to understand us, you know? And the treaty said that the eldest surviving male heir of Francois and Mary would inherit both the crown of France and Scotland, but if the only surviving heir was female, she would inherit the Scottish crown only. They didn't allow queens in France. They were as scared of powerful Scottish women as Boris Johnson. If there was no heir at all, the Scottish crown would go to the nearest legal heir, which at that time was James Hamilton, the Duke of Châtelet. On the 24th of April, 1558, Mary, age 15, and Francois, age 14, were married in excessive pomp and ceremony at Notre Dame Cathedral, which, considering we're talking about the French here, that is a hell of a lot of pomp, you know? For Mary, it was a fairy tale. Only Prince Andrew would have been more excited about marrying a 14-year-old. For a Scottish lassie, this really was a dream wedding, you know, because everyone was paying for their own meal. There was a dampener. On the occasion, however, the day before the wedding, Mary had signed a secret protocol, a kind of 16th 16th century prenuptial agreement, if you will, that effectively bequeathed the crown of Scotland to France. Mary, she had been forced to sign all of her power away and let someone else run her kingdom. It was a bit like Britney Spears, I suppose. The first clause in the protocol stated that should Mary die, the crown of Scotland would pass to Francois, and even if Mary died without having a child by Francois, he would still inherit the Scottish crown. The second clause, 
It mortgaged the realm of Scotland to the French until all sums that were spent by France on providing Scotland with military support during the rough wooings and for Mary's upbringing in France were reimbursed. And the third clause, it refused to accept in advance any decisions or agreements made in the Scottish Parliament that might contradict the protocol and any of the agreements reached in it. France was disregarding in advance any decisions made in the Scottish Parliament 460 years before Westminster were doing it. So, another country was controlling us, we were deeply in debt to Europe, and there was seemingly nothing the Scottish people could do about it. Completely alien to our current situation, I know. And the signing of this document, it didn't stay secret for long. It made clear France's imperial ambitions for Scotland, and it had the effect of turning many in Scotland against the French. Now, it would be harsh to judge Mary for her signing of this document. Almost all of her Scottish representatives had by that point been sent back to Scotland by Henri II. Mary had few Scottish advisers and she trusted her uncles, Charles the Cardinal of Lorraine and Francis the Duke of Guise, implicitly, believing that they had her best interests at heart. Now, Charles and Francis de Guise, they were the king's closest advisers, and in Mary, they saw an opportunity to ruthlessly exploit her for the interests of themselves and the de Guise family. Basically, they, they, they were predatory uncles, right? But not like Prince Andrew predatory. Do you know what I mean? Like the de Guise uncles, or the, the de Guises, they were kind of Machiavellian, shrewd political manipulators, whereas... I mean, Prince Andrew, he's just a nonce who lies about sweating. You know what I mean? Like, of all the things to lie about, like, if, if the royal family leave him, right, in the car on the sunny day, do, do they have to, like, crack the window open a wee bit for him? Like, how does that even work? In November 1558, Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne at the age of 25 after the death of her sister Mary Tudor. Now, English people, they love Elizabeth. She's one of their all-time favourite monarchs, probably because she was so white. You know, I feel like if she wasn't that white then it didn't matter what the fuck she did, Daily Mail readers would find a way to hate her, you know? And Elizabeth, she was the daughter of Henry VIII's second wife, Anne Boleyn. This meant that in the eyes of Catholic Europe, she was illegitimate since the Catholic Church had not recognised Henry VIII's divorce from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. And if Elizabeth wasn't a legitimate monarch, it meant that Mary, as the great-granddaughter great granddaughter, sorry, of Henry VII, was, at least in Catholic eyes, heir presumptive and the rightful Queen of England. And Henri II, he pushed hard on Mary's claim, since her marriage to Francois would then mean a French kingdom that included Scotland, England and Ireland. Mary was now Queen Dauphiness of France, Queen of Scots, and she had a strong claim to Elizabeth's throne in England. She was the most powerful woman, if not the most powerful person in Europe. But she was still a royal steward, and she was still Scottish, so inevitably things were about to go wrong for her. It started in July 1559 when Henri II died from jousting wounds sustained at a jousting tournament held in Paris. He died after a big jab. Which is a very Scottish death, isn't it? He died of a, a splinter to the face. So a, a, a special message to my fiance. I'll have you know that yes, in fact, that scelf can kill me. And I'm not being melodramatic. It's mad to think, isn't it, that in 1559 we had world leaders who died of wounds sustained in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And now, here in the UK, we have a leader who's most likely to die, if not of COVID, then of freezing to death in the fridge that he's hiding in. 
Henri, when he died, he was at the height of his reign, and his death, it meant that the 15-year-old Francois was now King of France and Mary his Queen Consort. Francois, he was deemed old enough to not require a regent, but he was young, inexperienced, immature, spoiled and ill-equipped to run the kingdom. So power, it was given to Mary's uncles, Charles and Francis de Guise. The de Guise power base, it centred around a spoiled, lazy, ill-experienced, ill-equipped, immature leader, and that is never a good idea, as the Republican Party can attest to. The de Guises were now the most powerful family in France, and by extension, the most powerful family in Europe. But Francois and Mary's reign wouldn't last long. Just 17 months after his father's death, Francois died on the 5th of December 1560, leaving the rest of his advent calendar unopened. The 16-year-old king died of an ear infection that had started in his ear and then spread to his brain. Like a, a, a UKIP virus, if you will. Francois was succeeded by his 10-year-old brother, Charles IX, and Charles's mother, Mary's mother-in-law, Catherine de Medici, she installed herself as regent and immediately set about dismantling the de Guise influence in the French royal family. Catherine de Medici's initial fondness for Mary turned to outright hostility after the death of Francois. I mean, she didn't, she didn't try to have her, her daughter-in-law murdered in Paris or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? Like, she wasn't a British queen. She just wanted Mary to fuck off back to Scotland. And so Mary was once again an incredibly attractive marriage prospect to royal suitors looking to inherit her Scottish kingdom and English claim. Suitors such as Don Carlos, the heir to the Spanish throne, the King of Sweden, the Archduke of Austria, even Charles IX himself, the new French king, Mary's brother-in-law, they were all touted as potential suitors. But it became clear that Catherine de Medici was against a marriage between Mary and her son Charles IX or a marriage into the Spanish royal family. And so Mary Mary, she was forced out of the French court by Catherine de Medici and was left with little option but to accept the Scottish Parliament's invitation to return to Scotland in the summer of 1560, a decision that was made even clearer when Mary's mother, Marie de Guise, also died in June of 1560. When Mary left Scotland in 1548, her mother Marie de Guise stayed to protect her interests in Scotland. The Scotland that Mary left behind at that time, or at least southern Scotland, it was under an English military occupation, but within a year the situation had been reversed. The English withdrew their forces, the rough wings were abandoned, and now French troops replaced the English. And the French troops, they were there to support Marie de Guise, who was working to secure her daughter's realm against the Protestant reformers. The Duke of Chatelereau, the heir presumptive, his half-brother John Hamilton was made Archbishop of St Andrews, and Hamilton was far more tolerant of the Protestant reformers than his predecessor Cardinal David Beaton had been. Hamilton passed legislation to curb abuses in the church, he introduced better education of priests, he even made concessions to the Lutheran doctrine of faith by justification alone. Now I covered this in a previous podcast, I think uh, James the Fourth or James the Third. To mind. Uh, basically, this idea of justification um, by faith alone, it was the watchword of the kind of Lutheran European Reformation. And it's it's basically the belief that the church doesn't have the power to indulge sins. It doesn't have the power. Basically, in the 15th and the 16th centuries in the Catholic Church, you could pay to be absolved of your sins. You could, <laughs> you could even pay to be absolved of future sins, which it sounds like a brilliant gig, to be fair. And justification by faith alone, that basically says that that's a load of bullshit and that the ecclesiastical structure of the Catholic Church, so stuff like bishops, archbishops, all that kind of stuff, that's unimportant and that it's individual conscience that counts. 
And so John Hamilton's well-meaning reforms, they were meant to reach out and appeal to to the reformers, to calm tensions and to curb the abuses of the Catholic Church. But the ecclesiastical structure of the church remained in place in Scotland, and for many of the reformers it was too little too late. They were not for accepting any concessions, and the Reformation was now unstoppable in Scotland. Marie de Guise was an impressive woman who had steered a careful political course with courage and skill. Throughout the 1540s, Marie had gained in personal stature with her defence of the realm against the rough wooings, and in the 1550s she came into her own. The more she defied Westminster, the more popular she became. So, hint, hint, Nicola. In 1550, she visited France to see her family, Mary, her son Francois, Duke of Longueville, and her brothers, Francis, Duke of Guise, and Charles, Charles sorry, Cardinal of Lorraine. A number of Scottish nobles accompanied Marie on the trip. She was trying to impress her travelling companions with the sights and the successes of the French Renaissance achievements, and it was a great success. The Scots nobles, they were in awe of the French royal corps of the incredible art, architecture, and the fact that you could get a beer in McDonald's. The trip was a great team-building exercise, but it was also tinged with tragedy for Marie de Guise. She was left heartbroken after her son Francois died, and she was paranoid for Mary's safety after an attempt to poison her was uncovered. Marie de Guise was never the same again, and Mary, well, she was banned from ever visiting Salisbury. In 1554, Mary Queen of Scots legally came of age, and as such she was entitled to choose her regent in Scotland. She chose her mother, Marie de Guise, forcing James Hamilton, the Duke of Chatelot, to to resign. So Mary, she got to choose who was in charge of the country when she came of age, a privilege the rest of us Scots will never know, because when we come of age, we vote for governments that we never actually get in this country. And as Queen Regent Marie de Guise, she had already gained the respect of the Scottish political community and she did what she could to consolidate the conflicting interests of the people of Scotland. Protestant preachers, they could preach freely without hindrance or fear of persecution, giving rise to mad pricks shouting on Buchanan Street holding a Bible. And Marie Marie de Guise's policy of religious toleration, it contrasted massively with what was happening in England under the rule of bloody Mary Tudor. Now, Mary Tudor, she had inherited the English crown after the death of her 15-year-old younger brother, Edward VI, in July 1553. Mary was Catholic, and she was determined to reinstate Catholicism in England after her father, Henry VIII, had broken, made the break from the Catholic Church in 1534. Now, more than 350 people were murdered in England for their religion, but many lives were saved in Scotland thanks to Marie de Guise's tolerance. Pretty Patel would have fucking hated her. Let's just put it that way. Marie even offered asylum to Protestants who were fleeing the counter-reformation that was happening in England. And I would like to think, you know, like if I put my ma in charge, like she too would have been tolerant and offered asylum to those who were being persecuted because of their religion. On the other hand, she would almost certainly have had people burned at the stake for not keeping their gardens tidy. So, you know, like you'd have been allowed to be Protestant, but you'd be fucked if you didn't pick up your leaves from your garden in autumn time. Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's a fair compromise, I think. Despite her attempts at creating harmony, Marie de Guise, she was still head of a court that was predominantly French. Most of her senior officials were French, the professional standing army was French, and the view in Scotland was that the country was starting to become a satellite state of France, which it was. Scotland was being controlled and manipulated by a large European power, and they didn't have to lie about it by plastering shite on the sides of buses either, you know? The Protestant reformers who may have once have been viewed as 
nothing more than English agents. They were now seen as patriots. They were opposing foreign domination by the French, and as their support grew, Marie de Guise's popularity began to wane. Marie was a a French leader who was hugely successful at first and whose popularity slowly began to decline. She, she was Arsene Wenger, basically. In December 1557, a handful of Protestant nobles who came to be known as the Lords of the Congregation of Christ, uh, a worse name for a group of white men than Snow Patrol, well, they met in Edinburgh and they signed a covenant that was called the the first band of the Protestant congregation in Scotland. It sounds like the shittest wedding band of all time, that one, doesn't it? Like, they just play simply the best over and over again. It's the only song that they ever bothered to learn, you know? Anyway, a covenant, that's supposed to be a, an agreement between man and God. And usually that agreement is to be a, a close-minded, unreasonable prick. And in this covenant, they swore... The, the lords of the congregation of Christ to apply our whole power, substance and our lives to maintain, set forward and establish the most blessed word of God and his congregation. And they put FTP at the bottom of it just to be safe as well. This open declaration of the Protestant cause by the lords of the congregation is seen as a turning point for many in the Scottish Reformation, but at the time it attracted very little interest. Very few of Scotland's nobles expressed their support and it caused little alarm to Marie de Guise when she travelled to, Fran to France again in April 1558 to attend the, the wedding of Mary and Francois. It did, however, trigger a change of policy in Scotland. Protestantism was no longer tolerated. Just four days after Marie de Guise left for France, an elderly Protestant schoolmaster, Walter Mayem, was burned at St Andrews for heresy. Well, they say it was for heresy. It was probably more likely because of Poor exam results. Do you know what I mean? Like the GTC did not fuck about back then. Okay, and this this was a, a very notable departure from Marie de Guise's previous policy of religious toleration. On the seventeenth of November, fifteen fifty-eight, Mary Tudor died childless. She was succeeded by her half sister Elizabeth, who was twenty-five years old, unmarried, Protestant, and Henry VIII's only surviving child. Elizabeth was the daughter of Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn, and she was going to depend on the support of Protestants in England and Scotland to reinstate an English Protestant state after the English Counter-Reformation. The Reformation was back with a bang in England, um, although not a big bang, because obviously God made everything in seven days, remember. Uh, anyway, the revival of the Reformation in England that brought fresh hope to the Scottish reformers, and it hardened Marie de Guise, who was now the Ecos Ness monster as far as Protestants were concerned. All Protestant preachers were now required to present themselves to the Queen or face banishment. This is also uh, a thing that Rangers make their new signings do as well. None did and all were outlawed. The reformist preacher John Knox preached a sermon in St John's Church in Perth on the 11th of May 1559. It was a sermon so vehemently against idolatry in the Catholic Church that the congregation were roused into violent action, smashing the ornaments and furnishings in the church and then sacking the monasteries of Blackfriars and Greyfriars in the town. The Protestant supporters were writing like they had just reached a UEFA Cup final and John Knox, he had successfully radicalised the congregation like a Protestant Abu Hamza. That wee hook hand actually would have come in handy for smashing stuff, come to think of it. 
And on the 22nd of May 1559, the Queen Regent Marie de Guise mustered an army and marched north to put down the riots. But thousands of Protestant supporters had flocked to the town to support the rioters. And the army, it was forced into signing an armistice, an armistice with the rebels on the 29th of May 1559. It was at this point there was a particularly important defection from the Queen's army to the Protestant rebels, that of James Stuart, Mary's half-brother. James Stuart was the son of James V by his mistress, Lady Margaret Erskine. He had distinguished himself fighting the English throughout the rough wings and had accompanied his half-sister Mary to France in 1548. He was one of the eight Scottish commissioners who represented Scotland at Mary's wedding in 1558 and his was the most significant signature on the second band of the Protestant congregation in Scotland which was drawn up and signed in Perth on the 31st of May 1559. The Lords of the Congregation mustered an army and they occupied Perth and Stirling before marching on Edinburgh where the Queen's army had been forced to retreat. The mob ransacked Schoonabbey looking for and purging churches and friaries as they went. They did more damage to old church buildings than a grand designs project. And this army of the congregation took Edinburgh where they issued a decree deposing the Queen Regent and setting up a council in the name of the absent Queen Mary. Marie de Guise, now gravely ill, had to retreat to Dunbar. She left Edinburgh for East Lothian like a, a local during the Edinburgh Fringe. Marie de Guise hung on in Dunbar until reinforcements arrived from France that were able to retake Leith and then Edinburgh. Now, during all this, Queen Elizabeth of England, she had avoided getting involved, but the news of the French troops' arrival prompted her to take action, and in January 1560, she sent an English fleet to blockade the Firth of Forth. It was the most effective way of stopping goods getting in and out of Scotland before Brexit. And the following month, she signed a treaty with the Lords of the Congregation and sent an English army to besiege the French garrison in Leith. The fighting between Protestants backed by England and Catholics backed by France lasted through the spring of 1560 and all the while Marie de Guise she lay dying in Edinburgh Castle. Marie de Guise finally succumbed to illness on the 11th of June 1560. Her death was greeted with obscene rejoicing by John Knox who was quoted as saying, Trump that bitch! By the time of Marie de Guise's death, English and French envoys, they had already been discussing peace. And the result was the Treaty of Edinburgh, which was signed in July 1560. And the treaty, it promised no more English or French interference in Scottish affairs and the withdrawal of both French and English forces from the country. And importantly, it recognised the legitimacy of Elizabeth I. The 1560 Treaty of Edinburgh was also the effective end of the old alliance with France, which meant that we could no longer get slaughtered while pointlessly attacking the north of England. Absolute nightmare. Mary, she refused to ratify the treaty because it had been signed on the Queen's behalf, but without her knowledge or consent. A bit like when Boris Johnson illegally prolegated Parliament, you know. And acknowledging Elizabeth's legitimacy, that would obviously damage her own claim to the English throne. So the Treaty of Edinburgh, it was the... It was probably the moment when the Reformation was finally settled in Scotland. Scotland was now a Protestant country, and never again would people in Scotland fight about religion. <laughs> <laughs> I could run everything. 
And when Mary arrived back in Scotland in 1561, it meant that she would now return as a Catholic monarch in charge of a newly Protestant country. And when she was making provisions to leave France, Mary, she asked Elizabeth for a passport that would guarantee her safe passage through English waters en route to Scotland. Elizabeth refused unless Mary ratified the Treaty of Edinburgh. And Mary refused to ratify the treaty until Elizabeth recognised her as her heir presumptive. And so Mary, she simply travelled without the guarantee of safety. It was an example of her bravery and her diplomacy. Elizabeth would eventually guarantee safe passage, but news only arrived after Mary had left France. When English ships shadowed her fleet, she would have been wondering whether they were going to board her ship and make her prisoner in England. The Lords of the Congregation now acted like a provisional government making decisions by Protestants and for the benefit of Protestants, although they mostly just spent their time awarding Rangers penalties. They passed a series of acts in the name of, but without the authority of, the absent Queen. The six Johns, John Knox, Wilcox, Woodrun, Spottywood, Rowan, Douglas, they wrote a Scots Confession of Faith, which was a formal public statement of the Church's beliefs. It was kind of like the, the mission statement of the new Reformed Church, and that was all laid out in the first book of Discipline, written by Joe Wicks. And the first book of Discipline, it dealt with the organisation of the Kirk, the election of church ministers, and a compulsory education system that made learning widely available with a school for every Kirk and available to everyone to ensure a fresh supply of new ministers. Free education remains an important policy in Scotland. We have a, a phenomenal system whereby we get English students to come up and pay for us to go to university. Uh, I can't even remember what I studied, to be honest with you. Do you know what I mean? It was pushed the whole thing. And of course, by the way, when I say everyone, what I'm actually saying here is boys, right? Learning was widely available as long as you had a cock and as long as you learned about God. So it's kind of like the American education system, I suppose. There would be more books of discipline along the line, making it a franchise even more unenjoyable than Twilight. For many, the Scottish Reformation happened overnight. In St Andrews, for example, on the 11th of June 1559, its residents went to bed as Catholics and woke up as Protestants. Through the night, John Knox and the Lords of the Congregation, they had come into town, entered the parish church, pulled down its Catholic ornaments, whitewashed the walls. It was like a Protestant version of Holmes under the hammer. They came in painted everything white and did the bare minimum to get the place ready to rent out to students. So when the residents of St Andrews woke up the following morning, it was a Protestant church that they had in the town. But for many other parts of the country, mainly the Gallic Highlands, the Reformation would take far longer to take hold. Protestantism and then Presbyterianism was actively resisted and rebelled against. John Knox is viewed by many as being the architect of the Scottish Reformation, the man who single-handedly turned Scotland into a Protestant country. In truth, the Reformation had been stirring long before Knox's sermon at St John's Church in 1559. His actions and the infect and his effect on the course of history, they're over-exaggerated. He certainly did a lot to stir up hatred of the Catholic Queen Regent Marie de Guise and of Queen Mary as well. But Knox, he wasn't the architect of the Scottish Reformation. He just managed to get people worked up enough to riot in his name against a female ruler. He was a 16th century Donald Trump, basically. Only he was causing carnage inside of the church instead of outside of it. John Knox, he was a, a brilliant and determined theologian, but he was never the leader of the Reformation movement or of the Reformation government. Not that many people followed him, paid attention to him, or cared what he had to say. Of course, that didn't stop the BBC from inviting him on to 
question time every other week. John Knox was born in 1512 or 1514 in Haddington in East Lothian. He was of English descent and he attended the grammar school at Haddington before studying at the University of St Andrews where he was heavily influenced by the teachings of a historian John Major who was a strong advocate of close Anglo-Scottish relations and even of union with England. John Knox was ordained as a priest in 1536, but he became a reformer shortly after. In 1546, he attached himself to the Protestant reformer George Wishaw and was one of the Castilians who besieged St Andrew's Castle and murdered Cardinal David Beaton. When the castle fell in July 1547, John Knox did 18 months hard labour chained to an oar on a French galley. Grammar schooled, strong advocate of a closer union with England, taught by a guy called John Major, hated the female rulers of Europe, Knox is like the uh, the ultimate Tory. Do you know what I mean? Even even going away and rowing in France for two years is pretty Toryish. John Knox was released in February 1549, and he then went to England, where he married an Englishwoman, Marjorie Bowes. They had two sons together. And Knox, he became chaplain to Edward VI, but he had the foresight to turn down the bishopric of Rochester that Edward offered him, foreseeing the trouble to come with the king's ill health and the likelihood of his Catholic sister Mary Tudor becoming queen. As soon as Mary came to the throne in 1553, John Knox was one of the hundreds of Protestants who fled Europe for safety. First, he went to Frankfurt and then to Geneva where he became minister to a congregation of English exiles and it was well Knox was in Geneva he met the French reformer John Calvin who had a, a huge influence on him it was John Calvin that turned John Knox into the most miserable man in Scotland. You see, John Calvin, he developed this Christian ideology of Calvinism, and this is based on the idea that God has the ultimate decision and say in the human world. All events are willed by God, including the individual soul. And this differed from other forms of Protestant theology that, that suggested the individual has at least some responsibility for their own salvation. Basically, what Calvinism says is, it doesn't matter what the fuck you do in your life, God has already decided whether you're going to heaven or whether you're going to hell. Everything has already been decided beforehand. It's like WWF wrestling. God is basically Vince McMahon. In 1558, while John Knox was in Geneva, he published a series of thunderous tracts, snappily titled, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Essential reading if you're the sort of prick who has a problem with female pundits on Sky Sports. It was an attack on the on the female rulers in Europe at the time, particularly Marie de Guise and Mary Tudor. Chapter 1 was entitled Grab Him by the Pussy. His opening paragraph read, To promote women to bear rule, superiority, dominion or empire above any realm, nation or city is repugnant to nature, contumely to God, a thing most contrarious to his revealed will and approved ordinance. And finally, it is the subversion of good order, of all etiquette and justice. Of Marie de Guise, he wrote, her appointment as regent was as unseemly a sight as to put a saddle on the back of an unruly cow. Unruly cow seems to be the look that Boris Johnson is going for, nobody seems to have a problem with it. And see, right, see if the Tories actually ever did try to arrange a rodeo. A saddle on the back of an unruly cow would be about the best they could ever manage. Like, maybe that'll be one of the things we get at this festival of Brexit. Knox's attack on women did little to endear him to Queen Elizabeth when she ascended to the throne in November 1558. When Knox tried to return to England with other Protestant refugees in 1559, he was refused entry by the new Protestant Queen, so instead he sailed to Scotland, and nine days after his arrival, in May 1559, he preached his famous sermon at St John's, 
that sparked the mob riots. Now, trying to impress a queen by writing a book about how awful female rulers are, that's like telling Scottish people how great the union is, how amazing and respected a member of the most successful union in history Scotland is, and then seeing devolution as being the worst thing to ever happen to and actively trying to undermine our democracy. On the 7th of July 1559, Knox was appointed Minister of St Giles Cathedral, only to withdraw to Fife shortly after, after Marie de Guise and the French army retook Edinburgh. When Mary Queen of Scots returned to Scotland in 1561, he berated her for her Catholic religion, and he applauded the murder of her secretary David Rizzio in 1566, and her second husband Lord Henry Darnley in 1567. When the Protestant plotters failed to take control of Edinburgh after the murder of Maurizio, Knox fled to Ayrshire and then to England, only returning to Edinburgh after Mary had been overthrown and just in time to preach the coronation of her son James VI. In 1564, at 15 years old, at 50 years old, he married a 16-year-old girl, Margaret Stewart, proving that middle-aged men getting in about inappropriately aged children was not exclusively a trait of the Catholic Church. Uh, and he had three daughters by his 16-year-old wife, Margaret Stewart. John Knox died on the 24th of November, 1572. He was uh, he was buried in the churchyard of St. Giles Cathedral, which is now the car park for the court of session. The site of his burial... Um, his burial spot is marked by a plaque on car park space number 23. It's mad to think that folk now go dogging on the grave of a religious fanatic. You know, I must admit, I do enjoy the fact that John Knox is buried in a car park. And I, uh, and I look forward to the day that we downgrade Margaret Thatcher to car park as well. John Knox was once a, a figure revered in Scottish history, but his reputation has undoubtedly suffered over the years. He's now the scapegoat for every pathological trait associated with the Scottish persona and the more extreme, joyless influences of Calvinism. But in truth, these Puritan influences, they would come in the following century, and really we should be blaming the national team, not Knox, for our misery and our pessimism. John Knox, he enjoyed music, he tolerated dancing, and he even allowed Sunday pub openings, making John Knox, who was a misogynist, religious zealot, probably too progressive for the Western Isles. Knox believed man and monarch were equal in the eyes of God, and this made him something of a, a God revolutionary, but of course... This equality it didn't extend to women. Knox, he hated Marie de Guise and Queen Mary, not just because they were a threat to the Reformation, but because he couldn't tolerate the thought of being opposed, debated and bested by a woman, although I bet he was paying to have women best the shit out of him at the weekends. John Knox, he's probably most well remembered for the disputes he had with Mary at Holyrood in 1561 and 1562. These Theological debates between Knox and Queen Mary, they're so well remembered because they say a lot about the Reformation and a lot about the differences between Knox and Mary's characters. Calvinist zealot versus Catholic monarch. Dour moralist versus Renaissance brilliance. Short old man versus beautiful young woman. It's perhaps telling that as Knox's place in Scottish, in Scottish history has dissipated over the years, Mary's place in Scottish mythology only seems to grow with age. John Knox, he... He, he used to be popular, he used to be respected, but now only the most extreme fanatics still love him. He's like, he's like Morrissey, I suppose. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. I hope you enjoyed listening. Um, what I try to do on this podcast is each week, I, um, I try to raise enough money through my Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon accounts to send someone deserving a bottle of Walt Whiskey. Now, it can be someone who 
has had a tough time during the pandemic. It can be a key worker. It can literally be anyone. You just need to give me a follow on social media. Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Montebank Tours. Or you can go onto my Buy Me A Coffee account and basically leave me the price of a, a cup of coffee or a pint of beer. And that helps me raise money, get enough money. Once I've got enough money in that account, I choose someone at random and I send them a bottle of whiskey. Um, I get loads of requests from folks saying it'd be amazing if, the, if you could send a bottle to this person or that person. But I need the money in the account to be able to do that. So if you did enjoy the episode, um, just, you know, please consider leaving me like three, four pound, the price of a pint, basically. It really does go a long, long way. I'd really appreciate it. And what I try to do is I try to match what I've been talking about in the podcast with a malt whiskey from Scotland. And today's malt whiskey, I'm going to go for the Octomore, which is from the, the Bruach Laddick district. And, and the reason I've chosen this whiskey is because when I was thinking, like, what what type of whiskey would Mary be? Well, Mary's, she's kind of regal and royal, like a Macallan. She's really smooth and light, like a, a Glenlivet or a Glenmorangie. You know, she's easy company. She's easy to be around. Uh, and what is John Knox? Well, he's the complete opposite of that. He's fire and brimstone and smoke. And the Octomore is basically the most heavily peated whiskey in Scotland. Um, and so it's the complete opposite of what uh, of what Mary is. And so that's why I opted for that one. Although I should warn you now, right, don't expect a bottle of the Octomore because it costs like well over 100 quid. But what I'll do is I'll send something nice and, and smoky and peaty in its place. And like you say, nominate someone uh, by sending me a DM on my social media accounts or leave me a comment on my Buy Me A Coffee accounts. I hope that all makes sense. Um, yeah, and I need you to to please read the podcast if you get a chance, uh, leave it a review, share it, follow it. It all helps massively. It really, really does. So please take a moment to do that. Uh, follow me on, on social media at Montebank Tours. Uh, you can also subscribe to my YouTube channel at Montebank History of Scotland. And that's it. I don't think I've anything else that I need to ask you to do. Thank you again so much for listening, folks. And I shall I shall see you all next time. Cheerio now. Bye-bye.